So, it is a good afternoon. So this afternoon we'll go to the fourth of the four measurables, which from one very narrow-minded perspective could look like an anticlimax, after loving kindness and compassion and equanimity. But when we look at the fourth one with insight, we see it's actually the grand finale. It's the full flowering of these four immeasurables, and it is the indispensable basis for venturing into the Mahayana, into bodhicitta, without equanimity. Bodhicitta never happens. Never happens. Impossible. Okay. And equanimity, of course, is not simply an, a feeling of neutrality, uh, neither happy nor sad. It actually has nothing to do with that. Equanimity, this term, upeksha, in Sanskrit, has different meanings in different contexts. I'll not give a scholarly exposition of each of the meanings, but suffice it to say, here in this context of the four immeasurables, it is an even-heartedness as we attend to all different types of, let's say, people for the time being. Uh, there are people who, immediately upon encountering them, they're agreeable, let alone their physical appearances. I think it's kind of superficial. But in terms of how they present themselves, how they engage with us, how they act, the type of attitudes they express, these are much more important than mere bone structure and skin. Right? And so in this regard, too, some people are very agreeable. We find it very pleasant to be with them, to engage with them. We look forward to seeing them again. And other people, perhaps on immediate, immediate contact, or even knowing about them by way of media, you know, from a distance, we may find their behavior quite disagreeable, and that's because it is. <laughs> it's not just prejudice. There's sometimes a behavior is just disgusting, you know. And there are attitudes that are appalling, and the attitudes get expressed, and the expressions are appalling, and that's just a true statement. I mean, I could be a Buddha and saying this; it would still be true, because Buddhas also recognize appalling behavior. The Buddha did, of course. He would not be intelligent if he didn't. And so there it is, just a, a, a flat-out fact that some people's way of engaging with the world, presenting themselves in the world, their attitudes and others, some are very wholesome, some very unwholesome, some very agreeable, and some very disagreeable. So insofar as we attend to others as objects that either give us pleasure or catalyze a sense of pleasure or displeasure, there's just no question other people are not even. Some people are much more positive nicer than others. But the whole point of this practice, this culmination, and that's why it truly is a culmination, the full flowering of these four immeasurables, is to look beyond, to look beyond the appearances. And to look to, from subject to subject, to almost like jump out of your own shoes and jump into the shoes, into the perspective, into the being of the other person and imagine viewing reality from their own eyes. And in this regard, then, actually we're all the same. In the sense that whoever we are, whatever behavior we engage in, and I mean the full bandwidth, from the diabolical to the angelic, the whole bandwidth, we're all doing what we do uh, out of a wish to be happy. And some people, when they get into gear, and are acting in order to find happiness, the satisfaction and so forth they seek. Some people, when they get into gear, uh, their behavior is magnificent. And others, when they get into gear, their behavior is diabolical. It's absolutely evil. But the motivation is the same. They want to be free of suffering. They want to find happiness. So the only difference then from the, from the let's say, the diabolical to the celestial 
and that whole bandwidth of behavior. Really, the only difference is the degree to which sentient beings, we sentient beings, are subject to dominated by mental afflictions. If people pursue their fundamental yearning to find happiness and be free of suffering, and their minds are really, let's say, utterly unencumbered, unfiltered, unabsured by mental afflictions, then they'll just be really nice to be with. And the same person, if you veil that person's mind with delusion, craving, hostility, it may be unbearable to be in their presence. But the motivation's the same. But then nobody ever chooses to have mental afflictions. Nobody ever wakes up with a pure mind and says, this is boring, let's have mental afflictions today. <laughs> Never happens. Any more than a person wakes up one morning and says, I'm just tired of being healthy, I think I'd like to have terminal cancer. Just something, something different for a change. Uh, nobody ever has. And so as dis- disease alights upon or comes to an individual, unwelcome and uninvited, so do mental afflictions come up. Unwelcome and uninvited. So the first victim of a mental affliction is not those who are the recipients of this person's harmful behavior outside. The first victim, of course, is the person who is suffering from the mental afflictions. And the worst of that is if they don't even recognize the mental affliction as a mental affliction. Then they're not only mentally afflicted, but they're delusional. And I mean in the technical sense of the term. They're delusional. They are fundamentally out of touch with reality. If you don't even recognize these basic mental afflictions as mental afflictions, diseases, poisons of the mind, then this just gives rise to all the more compassion for such a person is profoundly delusional. So when we cut to that depth, and I was, I, and with, without many more words, I'd really like to get to the meditation. But as we seek to cultivate this even-heartedness, this even-mindedness, this even sense of caring, it's a very nice verb to care, very nice word in English, to care, it's more primal than loving-kindness or compassion. Loving-kindness has a positive valence. May you find happiness, the cause of happiness. We, we smile when we think of that. May you be free of suffering and the cause of suffering. The, the facial expression is a bit more somber. When you see people suffering and from the causes of suffering. But more primal, more root-like, more fundamental than the derivative loving-kindness and, loving and compassion is simply caring. And so it's that sense of caring of wishing and then expressing itself derivatively as the wish that others may be free of suffering, find the happiness they seek. It's on that level. This equanimity is the even extension of caring. However people appear. And we are really experiencing this immeasurable equanimity when the heart is equally open and equally caring. For, her, for persons whose behavior looks like it's straight from the hell realms, just, you know, like they just came from the hell realms and they're just doing the same thing, but here. And we've seen this happen so many times in history. It's like you're just inviting hell on earth. Who needs to give examples? We have too many, right? And they've happened on all continents. It would be nice if only one race were bad, then we could say, oh, they're the bad ones. But no, it's, it's, it's us. It's us. All skin colors, all ethnic groups. And so, whether it's that type of behavior, whether it's one-on-one or creating for whole communities, hell on earth, which has happened so many times, or whether those who are just creating pure lands by their sheer presence. You know, I've experienced people like that. Where you feel like you're in a pure land just by being with a person's presence, because they're creating that just by being where they are. That whole bandwidth. If one can attend to this, 
end of the spectrum and this end of the spectrum, and the heart is equally open in a very sincere way, may you be free of suffering and its causes. May you find happiness and its causes. Then you found immeasurable equanimity. And that's the foundation. That's the foundation for the whole Bodhisattva path. That's it. That's one of the two, when I was first taught meditation, one-on-one, just given some practical instruction, uh, one-on-one advice. It was first from Gishod Hopton, way back, 71. It must have been 71. And he gave me just two meditations, and this was one of them. He had me just start right there. And he said, Alan, I'm giving you the equanimity meditation because if you look back on all of the kind of conflicts, restlessness, unhappiness, and so forth, you've experienced in your relationship with other people. It always stems from this, the lack of this. The attachment for some, the aversion for others, liking some, disliking others, etc. It stems from that, you know? And of course he was right. And he was also right, this is not easy. But it's so important that it mustn't be skipped. So you've seen in the preceding meditations when we were practicing the loving-kindness, in both of those modalities that we did, we're sending out. So sending out, many of you, but not all of you, are familiar with the Indo-Tibetan Buddhist practice called Donglen. Donglen. Dong sending, len taking. We're sending out the light of loving-kindness, the light of joy, the light of purity, light of purification. Uh, and we're doing this symbolically, of course, sending this out from, the, from the, our own Buddha nature, an orb of light of the heart. And then len, taking in, we imagine taking in the darkness of others' suffering, the cause of their suffering, but not taking in like an ever-increasing burden that's going to break our, break our back if it gets too heavy, but rather taking it in right into the nucleus. And here's an infinite nucleus. So even if you're taking in massive evil, this is bigger, and it can consume it, and there's no trace. So that's actually a crucial point that you draw it in and you extinguish it. So we, we did the tong, the sending out and the loving-kindness practice. We did the lin, the taking in, during the compassion practice. And now we'll take the two pieces and put them together into tong lin, one practice, and we'll incorporate that into the cultivation of equanimity. Okay? This tong lin is one of the most powerful practices in all of the Indian and Tibetan Buddhism, uh, taught magnificently by Shantideva, probably the greatest propagator of this practice in Buddhism. And we'll incorporate this now, which will be the foundation for tomorrow, then venturing into the Mahayana, culti- Mahayana practices, the cultivation of great compassion and so forth. And then it will become clear to everyone here how these are different from and transcend even immeasurable loving kindness, compassion, and so forth. And then we'll be moving on the fast track to the actual explicit and direct cultivation of Bodhicitta. Okay. So please find a comfortable posture. And we will jump right in.
in the spirit of equanimity, which does indeed have multiple meanings, let's venture into this practice by settling body, speech, and mind in a natural state, which means settling each one, the body, the respiration, the mind, in a state of dynamic equilibrium, of evenness, of balance. In the last session, we practice empathetic joy, perhaps a bit ironically, first of all, with respect to ourselves, where the word of empathy towards oneself means a bit strange, but nevertheless meaningful. We are in the habit of liking ourselves, not liking ourselves, taking ourselves as a pleasing or unpleasing object, approving and disapproving of this person we call ourselves. But if we have this type of prejudicial or biased attitude towards ourselves, then how is it possible that we would not apply the same to others and respond to them simply in terms of how pleasing or unpleasing, how virtuous or non-virtuous they are? So very briefly, as we start from inside, recall occasions in your past where some of the worst has come out. A strong mental affliction arises, it dominates, and we lose it.
we engage in behavior that's really reprehensible. We may really dislike ourselves, even despise ourselves for engaging in such conduct, for being that kind of person. This is aversion. This is hatred. Toward a sentient being who happens to be ourself. And then think of an occasion where you've really brought out the best. A wholesome mindset arises. And what flows forth in terms of your behavior, your way of speaking and acting, is truly good, something you rejoice in. Lovable, noble, you've certainly engaged in such behavior. Think of such an occasion where you really approve of yourself. Of course, there are many such occasions on the negative side, the positive side, the neutral side, where we're just getting on, just going about our lives, nothing particularly positive or negative. Here within our own continuum is the full bandwidth, from very negative to very positive, and everything in between. But what was common? What was the common denominator in all of these manifestations of the person I call myself? And the common denominator is that in all of these occasions, however my, my behavior manifests, I always wish to be free of suffering. I always wish to find happiness. Sometimes I'm more deluded and sometimes less. Not because I choose to be. It happens. So with a loving, even acceptance, an even sense of caring, for yourself in all of your varieties, and even-mindedness, wishing yourself well, especially when you're afflicted, and wishing yourself to be free of suffering and the inner causes of suffering. Develop, first of all, this even-heartedness, this evenness, this equanimity, towards this person over time whom you designate as yourself. 
May you be well and happy. May you be free of suffering with each out-breath. Breathe out the light of loving-kindness, of joy, of purification to yourself. As you visualize yourself, and with each in-breath, imagine drawing in and extinguishing this light in this light at your heart. The suffering to which you are, pro you are prone and the underlying causes of such suffering. With each in-breath arouse aspiration, may I be free. And as you draw in this darkness and extinguish it, imagine becoming free. With every out-breath, imagine finding the happiness you seek as you arouse this loving-kindness, this aspiration. May you be truly, truly well and happy. Now let your awareness come to rest in stillness in its own nature. Turn the light of your awareness to the space of your mind, as if you were about to settle the mind in its natural state, allowing whatever comes to mind to come to mind. Selective, uncensored. Open the space of your mind to all sentient beings, like an invitation to drop in.
and see whoever comes to mind, whether it's a loved one, an enemy, a neutral person, someone you know well or a stranger. See who comes to mind. And as soon as the appearance of some individual or a group of individuals comes to mind, rather than attending simply to the mental appearance, which is not a sentient being, by way of the appearance, attend to those individuals themselves, the actual human beings. Bring them a mind, bring them to mind, attend to them, <coughs> attend closely. However they may, they may appear, their behavior, their attitudes, virtuous or non-virtuous, pleasant or unpleasant, <coughs> attend to the depth where you feel the equality of yourself and this other person. <coughs> the depth of caring, the depth of the, the wish for freedom from suffering, the wish for happiness. And from that depth, the depth of sameness, of equality, as you breathe in, imagine drawing in the darkness of this person or these individuals suffering and the inner causes of suffering, wishing, may you be free, and imagine drawing in that darkness and extinguishing it. As you breathe out, breathe out the aspiration of loving-kindness, the light of loving-kindness. And imagine this light suffusing, embracing, filling this person. Imagine them finding the happiness that is their innermost heart's desire, beyond the realm of mental afflictions. Breathe in, breathe out.
Let the appearance of this person fade back into the space of the mind. Let your awareness rove. See who else comes to mind, whether a friend, whether a very disagreeable person, or someone neutral. And let's continue practicing in the same way. Now a call to your attention. A person who is a member of the community of Lama Tsongkhapa Institute, who's just met with a very tragic and untimely death. He's created a great deal of sadness and grief among many people in the community and outside as well. Much sadness. We don't need to know the name of the person or the conditions under which this person passed away. But you can know this is very much a matter of concern for many, many people in the community just up the road. They know who it is. So bring this specific person to mind without knowing anything about him except that he's just passed away under tragic circumstances. Bring him to mind and his friends, his loved ones, who are grieving. And as you breathe in, draw in the darkness of their sadness and any mental afflictions that might arise, of confusion, for example. With the aspiration, may you all be free, free of suffering causes. As you breathe out, breathe out the light of loving kindness. May each of you find the happiness you seek, 
and view this one individual who is now in the bardo. May you find clarity. May you rediscover your refuge. Call on the blessings of the refuge. And may you be guided and protected as you enter the next phase of your journey in samsara. May you be well and happy and not counter all the conducive circumstances for practicing and flourishing in the Dharma. Breathe in, breathe out. Expand the field of your awareness in all directions. With each in-breath arousing aspiration, may we all be free of suffering and its causes. Bring it, breathe in the darkness of the world and extinguish it. With every out-breath, may we all find the happiness we seek. May each one be well and happy. And breathe out the light of love. your awareness rest without object in its own nature. In equanimity.
So before we return to the text, just a very brief allusion to the manner in which each of these four immeasurables acts as a natural remedy for each of those four immeasurables when they go astray. Right? So we've looked at loving kindness as a remedy for hedonic fixation, compassion as a remedy for aloof indifference, empathetic joy for the, aloof, for the how to say, compassion gone astray to despair. And then finally, when loving kindness goes astray, when that goes astray, it just turns into self-centered attach- attachment, just focusing on one's own well-being. Everybody else phase out. So we're back to self-centeredness. And this is kind of natural then. Self-centeredness, well, it's recognizing, gosh, I'm not the only sentient being in the universe, that I'm surrounded by sentient beings, and we're all the same. On that level, we're all the same. And therefore, just being realistic to care equally for oneself and other, as well as agreeable and disagreeable others. So it's a very powerful remedy for a very deep distortion of the human mind. So now we do return to this text, this very dense, I think very rich chapter on Mahayana Refuge and the Vichitta. And every, cha- and every paragraph is very, quite packed, so I, can't, I don't want to really rush through it. But here we are on page 28, uh, about 60% of the, to the last paragraph of the, of the page, where Kamehameha writes, it is said that by cultivating relative bodhicitta in that way, and in that way means, in these three ways, for example, the shepherd-like, the helmsman-like, the king-like bodhicitta, in any of those ways, when the first bodhisattva level, the first Arya Bodhisattva Bhumi, Bodhisattva ground, is reached, the ultimate, ultimate bodhicitta arises. When he says it arises, it fully manifests in all its splendor. Because what he's referring to here is the direct and non-conceptual, unmediated realization of emptiness, of ultimate reality. Prior to that point, you do have realization on the stage of prep, on the path of preparation, for example, immediately preceding. Uh, this first Ayurbodhisattva level or ground, you do have realization, but it's still veiled or filtered through conceptualization, so it's mediated by concepts. Whereas when you become an Ayurbodhisattva, a Bodhisattva who has achieved what's called the Mahayana path of seeing, achieved the first Ayurbodhisattva Bhumi or ground, at that point, for the first time, the Bodhisattva has this unmediated realization of emptiness, and uh, the effects of that are absolutely staggering, uh, the consequences of reaching the first Bhumi, the second, third, and fourth, are found in many, many, many texts of classic literature. One that immediately comes to mind in a purely practice context is Gampopa's Jewel Ornamental Liberation, which has been now well translated by one Tibetan lama. Um, and right towards the end, he goes to the Bhumis and shows how the powers of the mind, just, the, just, just that, the capacities of the mind, expand exponentially from one Bhumi to the next Bhumi to the next Bhumi. It's absolutely phenomenal. But he's referring to the first here. And so he's saying, by gradually cultivating relative bodhicitta up to that point, then when you achieve this first Ayurbodhisattva Bhumi, then ultimate bodhicitta, which in this context is direct realization of emptiness, this arises, and that is ultimate bodhicitta. So this is for this general sutrayana, or Mahayana, that ultimate bodhicitta is the direct non-realization, non-conceptual realization of shunyata, which is, which is nirvana, which is dhammadhatu, which is ultimate reality. 
But now we have another context within the context of Vajrayana. It is said, and it is said, that in the Mahamudra and Dzogchen traditions, that realization free of conceptual, it is said that realization free of conceptual elaborations is ultimate bodhicitta. So now in this context, the same word has a somewhat different meaning. And I'll speak with a lot of confidence about Dzogchen because I've been I've studied and trained in that much more extensively. But there's no question about it. In Dzogchen, when referring the relative bodhicitta is the same. It's everywhere the same. But in the Dzogchen context, and here we have this from this master of both Mahamudra and Dzogchen, he's putting them in the same the same category. Uh, so in the Dzogchen context, and therefore he's saying also in the Mahayana, Mahamudra, ultimate bodhicitta here is referring to the direct unmediated realization of Rigpa, of pristine awareness, Buddha nature. Buddha nature. Dharmakaya. Dharmakaya. Buddha mind. Ultimate mind. It's also called Jittata, the ultimate reality of the mind, uh, which is not the same as emptiness. But it is that ultimate dimension of, of consciousness which fully realizes in a non-dual fashion, does realize emptiness. But instead of realizing emptiness from a relative perspective, as is done for the Arya Bodhisattva, following the Sutra path, in this path of Dzogchen, its ultimate mind realizes ultimate reality. It's Dharmakaya realizing Dhammadhatu, and that's called ultimate bodhicitta. So one could linger here for a long time, I won't. Uh, but in the Sutrayana context, it's very widely and very correctly stated that between these two, the wisdom and skillful means between ultimate bodhicitta and relative bodhicitta, all along the path, including after you become an Arya Bodhisattva, the path is really integrating and, and cultivating synergistically these two elements of the path. The relative bodhicitta and all of the virtues and merit, all of the virtues that go along with that, and then ultimate bodhicitta, realization of emptiness, and then you're going in and out, cultivating until finally you achieve enlightenment, and then the duality between these two melts away, and they become totally non-dual and perfect awakening. But until then, there is you're shifting back and forth, back and forth, from the relative truth to ultimate reality, from relative bodhicitta to ultimate bodhicitta. Right? Whereas in contrast to that, in Dzogchen, they're using the term in a different way. They're equating ultimate bodhicitta with the realization of Rigpa. But Rigpa is the very source. Rigpa, Buddha nature, is the actual source of relative bodhicitta. So you don't look outside of Rigpa to cultivate bodhicitta elsewhere, because this is its source, right? So when so defined, then there's no balancing between kind of two equals, ultimate and relative bodhicitta. It's tapping right into the center from which both of these emerge derivatively. Okay, it's a bit different. Methodologically, it has a different, different ambience. And I can tell you exactly how, uh, precisely. And that is when you become, when you gained some very profound realization of Rigpa, optimally, non-conceptual, unmediated, you become a Vidyadhara, a Vidyadhara, which in Dzogchen now corresponds to being an Aryabhadasattva, but with this direct realization of Rigpa. From that point, when you have this unmediated realization of Rigpa, then you don't come out of Rigpa and then do a lot of activities to try to balance that, <coughs> because the center is the balance. So from that point, you practice non-meditation. Remember that reference to non-meditation this morning? Non-meditation is not doing anything at all. You are resting in Rigpa, which is a profound non-doing. You're resting in Buddha mind, so you do not activate your sentient being's mind, which is still on the path. You don't activate that. You rest in Rigpa, 
and then simply allow these, these enlightened qualities to flow out of that center. And what will flow out of that is going to be relative bodhicitta, all the six perfections, and everything else arising effortlessly right out of the center. So methodologically, it's different. It's different. And non-meditation plays a very, very important role. But it's important to practice non-meditation only after you realize Rikpa. <laughs> and not before. <laughs> we California hippies, we want to hear, but we want to have that non-meditation really snappy. You know, right after we've gone surfing and had a nice barbecue, it's time for non-meditation, dude. You know, we like that. But that's not Dzogchen. That's just California dreamer. So then we continue. Then there is, okay, again, classic demarcations. You'll find this in Shantideva's Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life. There is the, here to to read it, the spirit of aspiring for spiritual awakening. This is the aspirational bodhicitta. And the spirit of venturing towards spiritual awakening, engage bodhicitta. So you'll find different translations. But I'm just going back to the Sanskrit, as you can see. But there's these two. One is more, is an aspiration. It is the aspiration to achieve enlightenment for the sake of all other beings. And then the second one is engage bodhicitta, such that with that aspiration, you're now entering into the practice, and it's applied. It's like getting in the car in gear, and you're on the road, rather than sitting at, at, a, at, at a stop and wishing, to, aspiring to go someplace. So an extensive way of cultivating each of these separately, that these two types of bodhicitta, is presented in the lineage stemming from Maitreya, through Acharya Asanga, and that is the five works of Maitreya that were revealed by way of Asanga. So there's one whole lineage there for developing bodhicitta, and this starts by uh, viewing all sentient beings as being your mothers and fathers, proceeds from there, classic practice. So there's one lineage. And if you're following that lineage, from Maitreya to Asanga, and then it, it makes its way into Tibetan Buddhism and all four schools of Tibetan Buddhism. If you're following that lineage, for this one must have any of the kinds of vows of individual liberation. These are are the uh, pratimoksha. This means having either lay precepts, precepts of a novice, or precepts of a fully ordained monk or nun. You must have these basic, uh, basic precepts of individual liberation. And the bodhisattva vows do not arise without having a spiritual friend who knows the collection of the Bodhisattva Sutras. So in this lineage then, when you want to take the Bodhisattva precept, the Bodhisattva vow, uh, then you must do so from a guru who is qualified, who knows the Bodhisattva teachings and practices, and then grants you uh, the Bodhisattva Bodhisattva, uh, precept or vow. Just as if you're taking monastic vows, you must receive that from somebody who has them. If you receive Vajrayana Samayas, Vajrayana, Vajrayana vows, then you must receive them from somebody who has them, right? And so it is for this lineage of the Bodhisattva. The ritual for taking the precepts of, bodhi- of aspiring bodhicitta and engage bodhicitta simultaneously is presented in the lineage stemming from Manjushri through Nagarjuna and Shantideva. So here's the second lineage. Here's the second lineage where you take the precepts for both in one ritual. And this lineage comes from Manjushri by way of visionary, visionary experience to Nagarjuna, and through the continuum, through the lineage to Shantideva, from Shantideva, of course, on into Tibetan Buddhism. So there are these two lineages. In this latter lineage, the one that we have by way of Shantideva, the vows, the Bodhisattva vows, may arise in anyone. So that is our present tradition. So as Gatranamuchi says in his commentary here, for the second lineage, 
the second tradition, you don't necessarily have to have the vows of individual liberation. You don't need to have lay precepts or be, have monastic precepts. And moreover, you don't necessarily have to have a person, a living person, from whom you receive them. You may just take them in your mind's eye. You may simply invite in your mind's eye the Buddha, a host of bodhisattvas, and you may just receive them directly right there without a human intermediary from whom to receive the uh, precepts. So they're very well known in Tibetan Buddhism. So as the basis for bodhicitta, as the basis for bodhicitta, it's necessary to accumulate masses of merit. So we must bring a, a, lot, of, a lot of momentum here, spiritual ment- momentum, to taking this rather formidable step of taking the bodhisattva precept. I mean, you're making, you're making a vow. Like if you take a monastic precepts, like 36 novice precepts or 253 precepts of a fully ordained monk, you take those only for the duration of your life. As soon as you're dead, then you're free of those precepts. It was only until you stopped breathing. you know. But then you don't have those precepts anymore. So you take them only from now until death. Or if some circumstances change, for whatever reason, outer and inner, for the monastic precepts, and you feel it's not in my best interest or the best interest of Dharma and so forth to maintain this way of life as a, a monk, then you may formally give back your precept. That doesn't mean breaking them. In fact, there's no fault in formally, properly giving back the precept. You may do so, and then you're a layperson. So I have done that. I was a monk for 14 years. Circumstances changed. I made my decision. I actually haven't regretted it, nor have I regretted the very, very wonderful 14 years that I was a monk. So, but you offer them back formally. The Bodhisattva precept is another order of magnitude, rather large. And that is, I don't know of any ritual to give back the precepts. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think there is any such ritual. I would have heard of it by now. So there's no, there's no way back. You take them, this is irreversible. But also, uh, the precept continues beyond this life. You're taking this precept, this vow, to achieve enlightenment for the sake of all beings, and the vow is from now until, as they say, I reach the essence of enlightenment. This is my precept. So that's quite formidable. But it's also quite magnificent, because in making such a vow, this is now going to be the thread that vow, that commitment, that unfinished business, that can be the thread, the continuity that brings you back from life to life to life because you're not finished yet. And so that can be what keep the hook that keeps on catching you from lifetime to lifetime, which is a very good hook. Right? So that's the upside to this, that you really have unfinished business until you're a Buddha. I like that unfinished business until it's finished. And so the second tradition, when, when in, the Tibetan, in my experience, uh, in the Tibetan tradition, when receiving the Bodhisattva precepts, I've always received, as far as I know, always from the second lineage. So, so, but in order to get there, so you're really ripe, it is suitable, it is now appropriate, but you take this step of taking the uh, Bodhisattva precepts, then a great deal of merit is needed. And so he comments here, in the past, very wealthy Bodhisattvas, over 10 million temples and wish-fulfilling gems. Okay? That's a lot. <laughs> and then generated bodhicitta for the really wealthy ones. you know. Uh, and then those lacking wealth offered discarded clothes and straw lamps, whatever they had. That was the best they could offer, discarded clothes, lamps, they would offer that. Then they generated bodhicitta. Those were people who have very meager possessions. And those who had no possessions at all generated bodhicitta simply while pressing their palms together. 
So, of course, the Buddhas don't care. The Buddhas don't need your temples, your clothes, or your folded palms. Uh, but the point here is something simple. Wealthy people, I think just generally, without pointing fingers, wealthy people tend to be attached to their wealth. Otherwise, they probably wouldn't have it in the first place. Or they wouldn't still have it. <laughs> they would have given it away, you know. And so it's quite natural. I think we all understand that. If you have something, I, I like my cell phone, wherever that is. Oh, I like it. Don't, you know, I want to keep it. And that's just a cell phone. If, uh, you know, I owned Apple, I probably want to keep Apple too. <laughs> um, all the free cell phones I'd ever want for life. Um, so the whole point is whatever you're attached to, whether it's your, your wealth, your family, your homeland, your body, your speech, your mental abilities, your accomplishments, your successes, your virtues, whatever you're attached to, you give it all away. Give it all away to cut the, the ties of attachment. But it's not just like throwing it away, like I don't care, just throwing it in the dustbin. But rather it's releasing it, and in so releasing it, in offering it, you're dedicating it all to perfect enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings. So basically investment. It's directing all there. Okay? So it becomes the all-consuming aspiration. There was a nice story from Milarepa after he committed this horrendous act of killing many, many people as an act of vengeance. Uh, and he struggled. He was one of those who really struggled to find the path. He really struggled. And then eventually he found, he learned of, an authentic teacher, Marpa. Right? And he knew this is it. I mean, he, he, he knew he'd done some really, really awful things. And he knew he had a lot of purification to do, but he also had a tremendous aspiration and pure renunciation. And he knew he found an authentic teacher, the great Marpa, the great translator. And so this, he was all in, a nice phrase. He's all in when he's seeking out Marpa. He knows, okay, this is it. I mean, it's this one or nobody. This one or I'm lost. This one or I'm screwed. That bad karma is going to come up and I'm going to be overwhelmed by it. And so it's this or nothing. And so he didn't have many possessions, but he had some, and he got all his possessions together. And then he went off to see Marpa, and he said, everything I have, I offer to you. Except he left one thing behind, a lame goat. He had a lame goat. He didn't think Marpa would have any use for a lame goat. It's kind of a crappy gift. You know? And so he left the lame goat behind, not because he was attached to it. He thought that's kind of an unworthy gift. And he gave everything else, and Marpa said, where's the goat? <laughs> I want the goat. <laughs> Bring the goat. <laughs> okay, now we're done. And yes, now I will guide you. And now roll up your sleeves. This is going to be a tough. This is going to be a tough path for you. It was. But when you have pure renunciation, all the obstacles just melt away over time. And there he is, most beloved yogi in all the whole history of Tibet. And so that's it. Give up even the lame goat. So. And then here's classic practice, really, really classic. It doesn't have a liturgy here. It just goes to the meaning. There are many liturgies. Uh, one is a wonder, beautiful one from the, um, from the Dujum lineage, from the Dzogchen tradition, but there's really nothing sectarian about it. But it does focus on Padmasambhava. It's the seven-limb puja, the seven-limb worship, the seven-limb devotion. Uh, Elizabeth, right there, she has a copy of this. Um, it's one, but there are many. There are many, and they're classic. And they're practiced in all schools of Tibetan Buddhism. It's very balanced. It's very balanced purification and accrual of merit in one, in one, how do we say, integrated 
uh, devotion, which is very, very good. Very, very good. And one thing I really like about number one, it's just absolutely classic. It's taught by Shantideva, practiced in all schools of Tibetan Buddhism. It's just immensely meaningful and rich and balanced. But also, one thing I like about it, it doesn't tell any counting. <laughs> you're not counting 100,000 of this or 10,000 of that. You're just, you're just doing this every day. You're just doing this, and doing this deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, this is one thing I really appreciate about the Galupa tradition especially, and that is they too all do accumulations, 100,000 of Vajrasattva Mantra and so forth. But I know from the teachers I've trained in in the Galupa tradition, they speak of these preliminaries such as, exactly such as this one, or the, uh, well, there are others as well. And they say, look, you need to keep on purifying obscurations and accruing merit until you're a Buddha. Up till the day you achieve Buddhahood, there's still more to be purified and there's still more, more merit to be accumulated. So don't think this is something you get over or you have to do and now, thank goodness, I'm finished with my preliminaries. Whew, just made it through the, the last set of 100,000 and now I can move on to the good stuff. I really think, maybe this is crass, but I think of this as, you know, that view is like trying to get into a sorority or fraternity on campus. And first they make you eat 12 raw eggs and run through the snow naked, shouting, I'm so pretty, I'm so pretty, as pretty as pretty can be. You know, something totally humiliates you. And you really don't want to do, but you really want to get into the fraternity. And then when it's over, you're in. Thank goodness. I know you make the next, the next, the next sucker suffer for him to get into the same fraternity. I mean, this is all over the place. Not in my generation, but I think my parents' generation. Big time. I, would, I, I, never, I never got into a fraternity. <laughs> it's probably why my emotional growth is still stunted. But in any case, it's just eerily rep- rem- reminiscent of something I've never experienced. And that is being hazed in English, American English, called being hazed before you can get into the fraternity. Having I mean, to do something you really don't want to do at all, but you really want to be in the in crowd. You want to be able to go to all the empowerments and get the initiations, get the secret teachings, the good stuff, and not the stuff for the general public. Like that. So I think it's, it's kind of, frankly, I think it's a silly attitude towards the preliminaries, which are anything but silly. So here there's no numbers, there's no accumulations, just this is very meaningful practice. And so we'll go through them quickly. It's very simple. Many of you are familiar with it. Uh, and there are many, many liturgies. They're all good and they're all meaningful. And this, as a daily practice, is really wonderful. Very balanced. Purification and accumulation of merit. So the principal ways to accumulate masses of merit are the sevenfold devotion, first of all. It's homage. It's paying homage. And this really comes by reflecting upon the noble qualities of the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, the Guru, and virtue throughout, and especially with the objects of refuge, reflecting upon their qualities, appreciating, aspiring to embody those qualities, and then while doing so, with this heart of reverence, of devotion, then imagine emanating your body as many times as there are atoms on the earth. Imagine just multiplying yourself, and then all of these embodiments of yourself, each one of them making prostrations to the Buddha, the Dhamma Sangha. So the first one is homage. The second one is, and that sets your sights, your direction. What do you revere? What is the focus? Where are you going? It's not simply revering someone else. It's revering the fruition of the path to enlightenment, which is your aspiration. And then secondly, offerings, for the same reason I mentioned before. Giving up all attachment to everything you're attached to and directing it all towards the path. 
So using the offerings you've laid out here simply as a basis for your visualization, like this lovely altar right behind me. So there it is, quite simple, quite lovely, but simple. Use this as a basis, and then on that basis, then you do visualization, where you just let your imagination play, let your imagination soar. And imagine them to be of the nature of your bodies, possessions, and roots of virtue, everything you're attached to, everything good in your life, and imagine these all in the aspect of the cloud-like offerings of the Bodhisattva Samadabhadra, filling the entire universe. So if you really get into this, it can be a lot of fun. You just visualize beautiful landscapes and waterfalls and delicious food and the night sky and just all kinds of beautiful things, good things, all virtues, and just imagine offering this all away. You offer the whole universe in its purity and its beauty. You offer this all away. That's the second one, offering. The third one, then, is coming back to ground for purification. And in their presence, in the presence of Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, you disclose and confess all sins and downfalls, any unwholesome deeds, any breaking of precepts, of samayas that you've committed since beginning of samsara until now. So if it's prior to this lifetime, you won't be able to remember them. Then you just more generically think, whatever downfalls, whatever misdeeds I've committed in the past, I confess them all, I disclose them all, I seek to purify them all, and turn away from them. And in so doing, you purify them. So you can purify negative karma before it begins to germinate, before it begins to manifest. Once the negative karma has germinated and the, uh, it's starting to unravel, it's starting to manifest, uh, that's actually too late then. Then you just have to experience the fruition of your karma. So better do it before it, it germinates, before it manifests. So there's the third one, quite sobering, grounding, purifying. And then fourth one, again, is uplifting, and that is meditate on rejoicing in all the, virtu- the roots of virtue performed by aryas and ordinary beings. So, Arya, uh, Shravaka Aryas, Buddhas Arya, Bodhisattvas, Buddhas, Aryas are all those who have had direct non-conceptual realization of emptiness, but all virtues performed by ordinary beings, acts of kindness, of generosity, philanthropy, and so forth and so on, wherever there's virtue in the world, and take delight in it. That's the fourth one. That accrues greater merit, as mentioned before. And then we have to those who have manifestly attained spiritual awakening, or Buddhahood, in other realms of the universe, and who remain without teaching Dharma. Request that they turn the wheel of Dharma. So in other realms of the universe sounds rather abstract and hypothetical, but we can also consider, as Gatrudamucha says in his his brief commentary just down below, where where there are those who, whether or not they've achieved perfect enlightenment, where there are people in the world right now who have profound realization, great understanding, and really could help. But maybe they're just not inspired to teach, as Gautamuji comments in his, his commentary just below, just feeling maybe no use. It's not that they're selfish, but if a doctor has effective medicine for some terrible disease, and he knows it works, but he knows the people who are sick won't take it, they just won't take the medicine. Uh, then the doctor might say, well, if you're not going to take it, I'm not going to keep on banging on your door, trying to force-feed you. you. You can't do it. And so I have the medicine, you have the sickness, but if you're not willing to take it, then I can simply pray for you. But I'm not going to try to make you make them take the medicine if you're not willing to. I remember I visited a professor, world, world expert on Crohn's disease. Um, apparently very, very uncomfortable abdominal problem for which they have the symptoms, but they don't know the causes, but they know, they know it's stress-related. That's all they know. And I spoke with him. He's a world expert. And I said, you know, I think shamatha 
practice like exactly what we've been doing in the mornings, I think this might be helpful to alleviate the symptoms. I'm no doctor, but I know something about stress and types of meditation that can help ease the body, soothe the body. So this might be helpful. You know, Would you be interested in doing a bit of research to see whether some basic shamatha practices might help alleviate the symptoms of Crohn's disease? And his response, I might have to say, really saddened me. Uh, because he knows his, his clients, his patients and so forth. And he said, well, Alan, you're, you're probably right. You know, this is stress-related. And the type of meditation you teach probably does alleviate stress. I mean, TM does. Mindfulness meditation does. Shamatha does. So nothing revolutionary there. I said, you're probably right. But the problem is, I know my, I know my patients. And even if you taught it to them, they wouldn't practice. They're waiting for a drug. They want, they want a drug. They don't want to have to give time. They don't really believe in it. They want a drug. They've been, and they didn't say it, but they've been so brainwashed that they've given them any sense of personal, personal responsibility for their health. They want somebody else to do it. And they would just want to open up their mouths like babies. Give me something to swallow. So, so well, then I, I gave up. I said, well, they're not going to practice. I'm not going to teach. What's the point? I appreciated his candor, but I thought, oh, your patients have really been brainwashed. It is materialism at its worst. It really is materialism. And so, so there it is. So where, where there are those who, whether they've achieved perfect awakening or they simply have realization, and for the time being they're not teaching, will ask them to turn the wheel of Dharma, request the turning of the wheel of Dharma, ask them to become active. And then those to those who are about to pass away into nirvana, request them not to do so. If they could linger longer, then ask them to remain. There's a good example of this one in the movie Yogis of Tibet. There's an extraordinary, a number of extraordinary yogis, but one is Dupan Rinpoche. Incredible. He looks right into the camera and says, I can remember all, remember all my past lives. And he said, I look like human from the outside and then not like that from the inside. And he cut his hair. He's one of these dokten, these really hardcore yogis who's fully ordained, but they let their hair grow long. A special, special dispensation. Uh, but they let their hair just grow long, they never cut it, until they're ready to die. And then they cut their hair. So this old yogi, who's been like 60 years in full-time practice, really awesome, and that kind of realization, he cut his hair, indicating, I'm about to leave. I don't know what I wanted to do. The Dalai Lama heard about that. And then he immediately contacted him and said, I request you not to die. <laughs> please remain. I know you cut your hair. Well, never mind, it'll grow. <laughs> but please remain. I want, you to conti- I want you to turn the wheel of Dharma. Don't check out. We have, if I have a comment, we have too few people like you. So he lingered for some years after that. If the Dalai Lama asks you to remain, you know you're in a good, in a good situation. So that would be a case of that. And then finally, uh, then dedicating virtue, dedicating the merit of your practice, dedicating that virtue to achieving perfect enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings. Okay? So there's the practice. If you wish, at this point, the teacher and student may recite a short prayer, but if not, there's no need. So there's the, if you're about to take the Bodhisattva precepts, then there's the, um, there's a preparation for that for accumulating merit, for purifying obscurations. And for those who wish to, since I'm sharing the transmission and explanation of this text, I think we have enough time. We'll just simply make enough time. For those of you who would like to take the Bodhisattva precepts right now, then please join me.
So we're just following exactly in this lineage, and now we're following the lineage of, Nag- of Shantideva. It was uh, Nagarjuna, wasn't it? Yes, Nagarjuna. By way of Majishri, Nagarjuna, and then Shantideva. So you visualize in the space in front of you the three jewels, Buddhadam and Sangha. The Sangha, specifically Bodhisattva Sangha. The, the Dharma, specifically Mahayana Dharma, the, the path of the Bodhisattvas. And our Kamachamit states, and I recite after him, what, four centuries later. So please recite after me. Whatever little virtue I have accumulated, three, three times, by means of prostrations, offerings, confession and rejoicing, beseeching and requesting, I dedicate for the sake of everyone's great, perfect spiritual awakening. Whatever little virtue I have accumulated, by means of prostrations, offerings, confession, rejoicing, beseeching and requesting, I dedicate for the sake of everyone's great, perfect spiritual awakening. Whatever little virtue I have accumulated, by means of prostrations, offerings, confession and rejoicing, beseeching and requesting, I dedicate for the sake of everyone's great, perfect spiritual awakening. So this is the preparatory ritual, then following the preparatory ritual for bodhicitta, there is the main practice. Having taken the Mayana Three Jewels as their refuge, bodhisattvas of the past developed the spirit of aspiring for and venturing towards Buddhahood, or spiritual awakening. Likewise, since all sentient beings have been my kind mother and father, I too shall bring forth the aspiration to enlightenment for their sakes. So there's the motivation. With that thought, with that thought, recite three times after me. All Buddhas and Bodhisattvas dwelling in the ten directions. Please attend to me. Teacher, please attend to me. From this time until I reach the essence of enlightenment, I take refuge in the Buddhas. I likewise take refuge in the Dharma and the community of Bodhisattvas. Just as the Sugatas of the past develop Bodhicitta and gradually engage in the practices of the Bodhisattvas. Likewise, in order to serve sentient beings, I should develop Bodhicitta and I shall gradually engage in the practices. Now for a second time. All Buddhas and Bodhisattvas dwelling in the ten directions. Please attend to me. Teacher, please attend to me. From this time until I reach the essence of enlightenment. I take, I take refuge in the Buddhas. I likewise take refuge in the Dharma 
and the community of Bodhisattvas. Just as the Sugandhas of the past develop bodhicitta and gradually engage in the practices of the Bodhisattvas. Likewise, in order to serve sentient beings, I should develop bodhicitta and I shall gradually engage in the practices. Upon the conclusion of the third recitation, and I'll snap my fingers at that moment, imagine that you receive the Mahayana and Bodhisattva precept. All Buddhas and Bodhisattvas dwelling in the, same, in the ten directions, please attend to me. Teacher, please attend to me. From this time until I reach the essence of enlightenment, I take refuge in the Buddhas. And I likewise take refuge in the Dharma and the community of Bodhisattvas. Just as the Susugatas of the past develop Bodhicitta and gradually engage in the practices of the Bodhisattvas. Likewise, in order to serve sentient beings, I should develop Bodhicitta and I shall gradually engage in the practices. Recognize that by reciting in that way three times, the vows of bodhicitta arise in you, and then say, well done. Very good. The concluding task is taking delight in oneself. What this really means is taking a delight in one's own practice, one's commitment to enlightenment. So having, so now here's a reflection. This is straight from Shantideva. Having attained a human body, it is significant that I have not died up to this point. By obtaining the vows of Bodhicitta today, like an elixir that transforms iron into gold, I've taken birth in the family of the Buddhas, and I've become a child of the Buddhas. With this thought, recite after me three times. This again is a direct uh, excerpt from Shandideva. Now my life is fruitful. Human existence is well obtained. Today I've been born in the family of the Buddhas. And I've become a child of the Buddhas. Now my life is fruitful. Human existence is well obtained. Today I've been born in the family of the Buddhas. And I've become a child of the Buddhas. And for a third time, now my life is fruitful. Human existence is well obtained. Today I've been born in the family of the Buddhas. And I've become a child of the Buddhas. Kamachame continues here, if one expands on the practices associated with receiving those vows, there's much to be said. So there's just that. You can learn a lot. But to be concise, and here's, he'll tell you what needs to be done, what's the essence here. Revere Mahayana spiritual mentors. These are your guides on the path. It's good to revere them. They'll be guiding you from here to enlightenment. 
Avoid the ten negative, the four negative deeds, and you'll see them below. Avoid the four negative deeds. Apply yourself to the four positive disease, deeds, and do not mentally forsake sentient beings. And that means do not mentally forsake anyone ever under any circumstances. Means forsake means forget you. I'll never have anything to do with you. You're a lost cause, and I will have nothing to do with you forever. That's abandoning people. Never do it to anybody. It doesn't matter what they've done. That's forsaking a sentient being. They still have Buddha nature. There's still hope. Maybe not in this lifetime. Paul Ekman, a very dear friend of mine, he's secular, doesn't believe in reincarnation. He said, when he looks, because he's up with a lot of, with the law enforcement, with criminals and so forth, and he's looked at criminals and he said, Alan, you know, I think there's some criminals that are hopeless. They will not turn away from their evil. They have no remorse, no conscience. They will remain evil for the rest of their lives. And there may be nothing you can do about it. And he may be right. Who's with me? But he may be right. Yeah. There may be people so committed and so delusional that they simply will not turn away in this lifetime. But it's only one lifetime. In which case, look to the future. There's always hope. Briefly stated, the practice of the aspiring spirit of bodhicitta is to resolve, is to resolve to attain Buddhahood for the sake of sentient beings. And so there it is. That's the first aspect. First, the aspiration, the resolve, and then the engaging. So with this, with this thought, this aspirational thought, this aspirational bodhicitta, with this thought, recite after me, just once. Now by all means, now by all means I shall engage in deeds, deeds that accord with this family. And I shall not contaminate this flawless, noble family. So it's a commitment to abide according to the Bodhisattva way of life, and I think there is no greater classic that you can carry with you in the palm of your hand than Shantideva's guide to the Bodhisattva way of life. And then, this is taking delight in others. So at first he, he simply gives a, a, a topic for a reflection. Today, in the presence of all the Buddhas, I have promised to serve and bring about the happiness of all sentient beings. Until you have been brought, you, you sentient beings, have been brought to the state of Buddhahood, perfect awakening. So it's his resolve, as long as there are sentient beings, then I commit myself, I promise, I make a pledge to do all I can to, to bring you to the happiness you seek. Or as Shantideva says at the end of its tenth chapter, for as long as space remains, for as long as sentient beings remain, so long shall I remain to alleviate the suffering of the world. His Holiness Dhamma Lama just recites that so, so often. So, the same point, same essence. So you deities in the sky, you devas in the sky, and all you sentient beings who possess mental extrasensory perception, that is, you're aware of what I'm thinking, what, are, what I'm saying here, all of you who are aware of this pledge, this resolve that I'm making, rejoice, take it seriously, I mean it. With this thought, repeat the following. Just one time, repeat after me. Today in the presence of all the protectors, I have invited sentient beings to experience joy until they reach the state of the sugatas. So devas and asuras rejoice. And now just once, repeat after me and repeat this prayer. May the precious, may the precious bodhicitta arise in those in whom it has not yet arisen. May it not decline in those in whom it has arisen. 
and may it grow greater and greater. May we not be separated from bodhicitta. May we enter the Bodhisattva way of life. May we be cared for by the Buddhas. And may we also be free of the deeds of Mara. May the intentions of the Bodhisattvas to serve sentient beings be fulfilled. May sentient beings receive whatever the protectors intend. May sentient beings have happiness. May the miserable states of existence always be empty. Wherever the Bodhisattvas well, dwell, may all their prayers be fulfilled. By those means, the vows of Bodhicitta are received. It's interesting. It's okay. But I appreciate your enthusiasm. So this is the training. And, just, and he just simply quotes again, not forsaking sentient beings, bearing in mind the benefits of bodhicitta, accumulating the two accumulations, the two collections of merit and wisdom, merit and knowledge, and again and again cultivating bodhicitta, following the four positive actions and avoiding the four negative actions, those five comprise the training of bodhicitta for Buddhahood, for spiritual awakening. And Gautra Nimbuchal, I'll leave you to read it, it's very self-explanatory. But on page 31, right in the middle there, Gautra Nimbuchal is exactly what those four negative deeds are and what the four positive are ones. He said it very clearly. You can all read clearly. So that's regarding the spirit of aspiration, the aspirational bodhicitta, then the, tra- the training of the spirit of venturing toward aqua- uh, awakening or engaged bodhicitta is chiefly comprised of the three, ta- tra- three trainings, the three higher trainings of ethics, samadhi, and wisdom. So there's the short version, and they're included in the six perfections. Generosity, ethics, patience, enthusiasm, meditation, and wisdom. So there's your, there's your way of life, there's your practice, laid out in the three trainings, or more elaborately in the, in the Mayana context. The six perfections culminating in wisdom. So if one takes those as one's vows, they are, here he says it, generosity, ethical discipline, patience, enthusiasm, Meditative stabilization, or simply meditation, and wisdom, those six comprise the training of the spirit of venturing towards awakening. So, as you're envisioning the direction you want to go, what you'd like to achieve, to realize, this is the aspirational bodhicitta, and then applying that motivation to practice, and you apply that to the six perfections, and then you set out on the bodhisattva way. And then finally, I think we'll stop here. According to the Chittamatra tradition, Chittamatra tradition, so they're different, again, different lineages regarding the Bodhisattva precepts, the, the, the primary and secondary precepts or vows. According to the Chittamatra or mind-only tradition, there are four defeat-like actions and 44 secondary faults. So that's one tradition. Defeat-like actions, uh, these are the ones that really kind of demolish or are so profoundly antithetical to your bodhisattva vow, that you've kind of mm, torpedoed it. According to the Madhyamaka tradition, and this is the one again more widely taught, the one that I've been trained in, according to the Madhyamaka tradition, for those of sharp faculties, there are 18 vows for kings, ministers, and so on, 
And for those of middling faculties, there are four vows. And for those of dull faculties, there's one vow. <laughs> so good. I, I always wait. I can tell you, and I'm being totally sincere. I always wait for them to get to the dull one. Because that's where I feel the, foot, the shoe will fit. And I'm not being humble or anything. I mean, just, just true. I hear about the, the, you know, the, the ones of short faculties. And, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then medium. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then finally, oh, okay, now you got to me. So dull faculties, one vow. I think I can handle that one. And this is nice. We have a couple of minutes. Remember I mentioned that the Buddha's advice to a king has all these responsibilities. Can't go into a shamatha retreat. Probably not. No three-year retreat for you. Sorry. You know, too many duties. Too many people counting on him. So here's the advice to a king, Sutra, the Buddha's discourse of advice to a king. And it states, great king, you, and you're all kings, kings of your family, king of your business, king of your supermarket, whatever, you know, you're kings in your own domain. You have your jobs, right? So don't think this is just for somebody else. This is probably you. Great king, you who have, you have so many activities and so much work. You may not be able at all times and on all ways to practice the perfections from generosity to wisdom because you have to do other things. Therefore, great king, whether you're walking, getting up, sitting, lying down, waking up, or eating, constantly bear in mind and cultivate aspiration, faith, yearning, and longing for genuine, perfect enlightenment. So you'll have many courses throughout the course of the day, many desires. Desire to get a cup of coffee, desire to go out to your car and drive, desire for all kinds of things, desire to talk to your television, desire to relax and watch a bit of television maybe. Many desires arise. But underlying all those desires is kind of like the desire of desires, your prime directive, that which makes all the rest of the desires potentially meaningful, is bodhicitta. So keep on trying to come back to that. This is so much deeper than simply coming back to relaxation, stillness, and vividness. That's good. But you can come back to relaxation, stillness, and vividness because you want to rob a bank very effectively. Really, you can use that for anything. Robbing a bank hitting a golf ball into a little hole. It's still useful, you know, for stuff that... I always thought that was quite trivial, to knock a ball into a hole and then take it out again after you've done it. <laughs> At least leave it there. If you, you know, they, people, they wanted it so much, and they wanted to get in it so quickly. You'd think they'd at least leave it there. They could write home, my ball is there. It's kind of like, if you climb a mountain, you climb a mountain, you, you put a flag there, right? You don't climb a mountain, put a flag, and then take the flag back home. You leave the flag up there. I was here. I did it. Or you put your name on a little marker. I climbed, you know. You should leave your name on the little cup on the golf course. I made it. <laughs> leave your ball as a memento. They don't even do that. They just So there's no trace of them ever having been there. To my mind, that's completely meaningless. You knock into a hole, you take it out, you walk away, and nobody's the wiser. But you'd probably still affect, knock it into the hole more effectively if you're relaxed, stable, <laughs> vivid. But it is deeper than that. There's just and this is Shamadeva says this too. I love it because I really need this teaching. And that he says once this bodhicitta really, you get into the flow of it, where it's really there. It's not just lip service, but it really is the desire underlying all your desires. It's really the direction of your life. Then on occasion, you're bound just to get tired. We all get tired, just exhausted, pooped out at the end of the day. Maybe want a little bit of entertainment. Want something harmless or even maybe informative, entertaining on the television or listen to music or some light reading. Because you just need a bit of a break, right? We all need that. And he said, if you're, you're 
underlying aspiration is bodhicitta, then even when you're just sitting back and relaxing, you're still accruing merit. It's still dharma. Because the, the aspiration, the desire for getting some relaxation, just kicking back and relaxing, having a cup of tea, it's still bodhicitta. So that's part of your bodhisattva activity, is watching a bit of television. can be. You wouldn't do something unwholesome, but as long as it's neutral or wholesome, that's fine. So even just resting, just going for a walk, when the underlying motivation is bodhicitta, that's part of your bodhisattva way of life. That's really encouraging. In other words, it's not heavy. It's not like, you know, the hammer, you're not practicing dharma, you know, your meditation cushion's getting cold. <laughs> so that's kind of nice. So, so there's the first point. Keep on coming back to bodhicitta with aspiration for enlightenment, faith in the path, yearning for the path, longing for genuine, perfect enlightenment. Take delight in the virtues of others. Remember that one? That's really fun. I mean, it's nice, it feels good, and that means, but you have to pay attention. Look for it, but you will see it. Little virtues, big virtues, virtues you read about, you see on the internet, you see by way of the news, you hear on the telephone. There's just virtues all over the place. But we have to listen for them, then we see them, recognize them, and then take delight in it. That really can change your whole life, right there. That one little phrase right there, take delight in the virtues of others. And having done so, make offerings to all the Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, Shravakas, and Pratyaka Buddhas, so just make your whole life an offering, and having done so, treat all sent beings in the same way. Imagine a king like that. Then, so that all sentient beings may be complete in all the qualities of the Buddha, dedicate this each day to supreme enlightenment. Great king, great president, great prime minister, great CEO of corporations, anybody with influence. If you do that, you may also rule your kingdom running your government, your business, and so forth. You can do that. And your royal duties will not fall into decline. This will not in any way detract from your obligations. And the collections towards enlightenment will also be perfected. So you can actually do both. Very powerful. Yep. So that's good. That's enough for today. So we have our hands, we have our hands full. We have a full agenda. And for these eight weeks, happily, we have nothing else to do besides practice stuff. So enjoy your evening. And I'll see you tomorrow morning.